The reading is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 1 to 11 and it's found on page 186 of the Church Bible. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their faith by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their faith those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. Thank you, let's put this pray as we look at this passage together. Father, it's difficult to read passages like this. We know how difficult they are for us to understand and to, to reconcile sometimes with um, a God of love and mercy. And we want to, to understand how you would have us understand this passage this evening. We want to know you, we want to know your, your holiness, your mercy, your justice. We want to treat this uh, question superficially because we know it is an important question in many people's minds and so we just pray that you would uh, make us aware of you speaking to us may your Holy Spirit open our eyes and minds and hearts to see you and help us be sensitive to those who don't yet know you Lord as we speak to them of your great love for us Bless our time this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what we've been trying to do for a few Sunday evenings is to provide some more sort of practical training on difficult questions that arise from uh, those who are not yet Christians about the Christian faith. And the ones we're looking at are directly related to the sermon series in the, the morning on Deuteronomy. So, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at God's uniqueness. Um, that he is the one true God besides him there is no other therefore we shouldn't be worshipping idols now that immediately raises the question what about other religions and the question that will often come up 
then all religions lead us to God. Well, this morning we look at God's faithfulness to his people in terms of keeping his promise to, to give them a land, a land for themselves, uh, where they can dedicate themselves to the worship of God. They won't be tainted by any other influences. And what that meant was clearing out the land of those who were uh, in possession of it at that time. Which again raises the question in many people's minds, well, how could a God of love condone such action, let alone command it? And to make it even more horrific, people use emotional terms like genocide. Now, how could you worship a God who condones genocide or even commands genocide? Genocide being the, the killing of a very large number of people from a particular ethnic race. And there have been many instances of genocide in recent history. Um, Nazi Germany, we recall Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, Libya, Iraq. And however much we think the world has developed over time, one thing hasn't changed, that terrible atrocities still continue to take place and will carry on taking place until the Lord comes again. As Christians we're not surprised in many ways because we know the world has fallen. We know that man is inherently sinful. And we know that Jesus told us that wars will happen. We should expect wars until he comes. But because we're made in the image of God, and we're also made with a sense of morality, a knowledge of right and wrong. And that is greater or less depending on God's grace that is at work in us, which is common grace in those who are not even Christians. They still have that sense of right and wrong. As a nation moves away from God, there will be a difference of, uh, of values. So, for instance, you may still have a value of the sanctity of life, but how do you apply that? when it comes to ending life. Issues like euthanasia, issues like abortion. But there's still generally moral outrage at genocide, even if there isn't the, the courage or the political will sometimes to do something about it when it happens in other parts of the world. And atheists like Richard Dawkins have used passages like the one we read to condemn Christians because they worship the God of genocide. This is what Dawkins right, in some pretty unpleasant language. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, or a female, sadistic, capricious, female, malevolent, bully. Now, Christians, we find that pretty offensive, don't we? Um, that was not the God we love. But there will be people who believe that. And so how do we respond to people like that? And we ourselves may be disturbed by passages like this as well, mightn't we? So um, how do we understand them? How do we put our own minds at rest? And how are we able to respond to those who raise such questions, however um, they may phrase them? Just to sort of get our minds um, working here, what I'd like you to do is just for a couple of minutes, with the person next to you, just Talk about how you would respond to that question. Um, you don't need to share your answers afterwards or anything. Just, um, but share now, just get your mind thinking. How would you respond if somebody came up to you and asked you that question? How could you worship a God who commands genocide? How would you answer that question? Just a couple of minutes. If you'd rather not do it, feel free to sit quietly. 
Um, if you want to listen to somebody else's conversation, feel free to, to do that as well. Okay, we'll uh, call you back. Um, I won't um, ask you what you came up with, because we're going to look at this now over the next uh, little while. And um, hopefully some of what we'll look at you've thought of already, and, uh, but uh, there'll be some extra things that may, you may find helpful. Um, I think before we consider the question in detail, maybe there's a couple of things we do need to deal with in, in our own minds. Because Dawkins' description was of the God of the Old Testament, and there's this feeling in some people's minds that there's somehow a different God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think we need to be clear there is no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the one same God. And I think, um, just to make that clear, you know, one life, for example, did a word study on the word mercy. And, um, Apparently there are 261 uses of the word, and 72% of those occur in the Old Testament. The Old Testament God is a God of mercy. The word love occurs 322 times, and 50% of those, again, are in the, the Old Testament. And conversely, the eternal punishment is very rarely mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's very frequent in the New Testament. But more importantly, God himself says, I, the Lord, do not change. In his word, it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same, same God. He's a holy God, a God who can't look upon sin, but also a loving, a gracious, merciful God who wants to forgive all those who repent. Secondly, Old Testament stories do not prescribe how we should behave today. And there are things in the Bible um, that God's people do, but that God doesn't necessarily condone. David's adultery and murder, for example, um, Solomon's under the wives, um, the ability of the people of Israel to get divorced. There are some pretty gruesome stories also in Judges about um, uh, the way people behave when everyone did as they saw fit. That doesn't mean those things are condoned um, by God. But also because God may condone a certain action at a point in time, doesn't mean you can make a general application to life today. In other words, taking over the promised land, by Israel doesn't somehow condone holy wars. It's got nothing to do with Islamic jihad today. Um, Christians are not called to take up arms for the sake of God. So with those two things cleared up, where, where, where do we go there? I think what we'd like to do this evening is really put in place some building blocks which will help us create an understanding of God's justice on one hand and God's mercy. And these are things I think if you're going to try and answer this sort of question, I think all these building blocks we need to have in place, we're not going to necessarily use them all when we answer them, but to have this in our mind helps us to understand the God we worship. And the first of those is that God is a sovereign creator and owner. Now he's made everything, he's made everyone, and therefore he rules over everything and everyone. And he also has absolute right of ownership over everything and everyone. It says in Psalm 24, the earth is the law, and everything in it. And as Job realised when he lost his whole family, he said, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now as God's created beings, with our human limitations, we can't understand everything God is doing. We can't see his mind clearly. We are created beings. But, 
God did make us in his image, as we were saying earlier, we have a sense of morality, which makes us find certain things, like um, this passage, you know, difficult to, to, to grapple with. So the second point is that, that God is just and righteous. In later on in Deuteronomy 32, it says, He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. Now it's easy for people to question God's justice when seemingly unjust things happen in this world. But simply by asking the question, what we are doing is putting ourselves in God's place. If we say, how can God allow this? We are almost claiming to be God. We are putting God in the dock. We are examining God. This is what we're told we are not meant to do. And it's a certain state we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Remember when we were looking at the question of don't all religions lead to God? Sure, there's a bit of truth in every religion. Not one religion has the absolute truth. You know, what people are doing there is putting themselves in the position of God. But it is God who defines justice in the same way that he defines love. It doesn't mean we can't try and understand why he behaves in certain ways at different times. And in this case, how he was acting in a just way by destroying the Canaanites. Was it justice? Or was it the act of what Dawkins would call a capricious or a cruel God? God is just, but thirdly, God has to punish sin according to his justice. Now, God's nature, his just nature, demands that he deals with corrupt people who stubbornly persist in their, their evil ways. And we'll look at a couple of examples here. For example, the time of Noah. This is what it says in Genesis. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That is pretty condemning, isn't it? Because the earth was full of violence. It was a wicked place to be. And so having saved Noah and his family, God sends a flood to destroy the earth. And likewise, the nations that God commanded Israel to drive out were evil nations. It wasn't just that um, they happened to be in the way of Israel and God planned for Israel, so let's just sort of move them out. It wasn't some sort of divine repossession order. It also wasn't that Israel had done really well and therefore here's your reward, here's the promised land. Let's just look at Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verse 4, we'll see what God says, what Moses says to the people of Israel. He says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now three times God says it is not because of your righteousness, actually you are, you are a stiff-necked people, in case you thought well of yourself. Twice he says it is because of the wickedness of these nations. And elsewhere we read that these were violent nations. They fought against others. They engaged in all sorts of 
sexual perversions. They indulged in all sorts of religious ritual, including child sacrifice. But if such a country existed today, we would want to do something about it. We would want to have justice. God has to punish sin according to his justice. But the next point I think we need to be clear about is that we all deserve God's justice. And that's quite important to get across to, to somebody. Because many people think that only really bad people should be punished. And surely these people hadn't done anything really bad to deserve that sort of punishment. But actually all of us deserve to punish for our rejection of God, don't we? Our rejection of his laws. And God's justice is just made to demand that we receive his punishment in proportion to the sins that we've committed. And so when we die, we will all face God's justice. And Deuteronomy 7 is in many ways a, a picture of the final judgment, the eventual fate that awaits all those who set themselves against God, who refuse to, to repent and receive his mercy. But the good news, you say, is that we do have an opportunity to repent. Because God, although he is just, he's also merciful, he's also patient. Think about Noah, we mentioned. Think how long it took Noah to build that ark. Um, hundred years at least, I'm sure. The people had time to repent. But they didn't accept they would be judged for their actions. And so, as it says in the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus will be like the days of Noah. It says, from the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. They had the opportunity, Noah is a scribe, as a preacher of righteousness. He told them, he warned them, but people ignored him. Now there are good examples that we can turn to the city of Nineveh for example. Do you remember how uh, Jonah was sent to Nineveh? Uh, he was given instructions, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And when Jonah got there, eventually, um, he gave them the message. And what was their response? Well, this is what the king said uh, of Nineveh. He says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I'm sure enough what happened when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now God here is threatening destruction of Canaan but they also had plenty of time to repent of their wickedness. People, Abraham lived amongst them and Melchizedek lived amongst them but if we turn back to Genesis 15 and uh, the promise them um, God gives to, to Abraham. He talks about um, his offspring inheriting the, the promised land. Genesis 15 verse 13 this is what God says to Abraham. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years in the country of Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions you have will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the land of Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites, or Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. Already they were in sin, 
and they continued in that way and became hardened in their sin. They had opportunity to repent, but they didn't turn away from it. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there weren't individuals amongst those nations who did repent, who did receive God's mercy. One of the classic examples is the prostitute Rahab. The spies went into to Jericho and uh, Rahab protected them, saved their lives, gave them a way out. And when the city eventually fell, she and her family were spared. Were there others who were spared? Well, there could well have been. We don't know, do we? Um, but the emphasis here in Deuteronomy 7 is on driving out. That's the main emphasis. It's not on destroying. And why is it important that they were driven out? That comes on to the next point, that God's ultimate plan is to bring salvation to all the nations. And that is through Abraham and his offspring. As we've seen, God chose Israel not because they were somehow better than the other countries. They were chosen so God could bless them and fulfill his promise to Abraham. In you, all the families on earth shall be blessed. He wanted to bring salvation to all nations through Israel. Now, the other nations had a chance to be part of God's kingdom. And some individuals did come into the, the people of Israel. But mostly they chose another path. So if God was going to protect this nation through whom he's going to bless the world, then he had to, to protect them. A bit like a D-Day who had been commemorating recently, the thousands of soldiers who landed were meant to be a blessing in many ways to, to Europe. They were there to liberate Europe from, from Nazism. But for that to happen, they had to be protected. So you had the ships um, bombing the German emplacements as they landed to, to protect them and allow them to, to go and free Europe. And the removal of the nations enhancing the promised land is for that ultimate purpose, to protect his people so that they will be able to fulfill his plan. Removing anything or anyone that may divert them from that, that course. And so the command is to drive out, is to destroy those who remain. But have a look at verse 3. It also says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters their sons or take their daughters to your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you have to do with them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their asherah poles, burn their idols in the fire, anything that will contaminate them. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people with treasured possession, to be a blessing the world. Now it does imply, if the question often comes up, well what about the women and the children? What about the innocent ones? Now it does imply that there were some left over, otherwise there wouldn't be a command to, to not intermarry. And there are various views on, on that as well. But what is clear from this is that this isn't genocide in the sense of hatred of individuals belonging to some ethnic group. This is removing nations who set themselves against God and his plan of mercy for the world. It's a plan of mercy, it's not a plan of um, world domination for an individual. And his mercy is available to all those who repent of their rebellion. Now the big question is, if God shows mercy, how can he 
still be just. How is justice done if he simply shows mercy? And the answer, of course, is in Jesus. God's means of blessing the whole earth is fulfilled in him. And as the Bible goes on, it becomes clear that um, the rebellion against God and his plans, which were so clear in the Canaanites, is found in each one of us, in each individual person. We all try to resist God's plan. We want to reject our part in it. We want to reject Jesus' lordship over our lives. And that is what we call sin. But um, in one of the most shocking verses of the Bible, it says this in 2 Corinthians, For our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's a great verse, isn't it? It's a shocking verse, but it's a great verse. The sin of the world, all opposition to God was made on him. He became the one who had to be killed so that God could bless the whole world. And he did that for us. He did that for those who reject him, who oppose him, so that we can be part of God's people. And that is where that sentence to destruction in Deuteronomy 7 leads. It's leading to a sentence that God himself, in the person of Jesus, chose to take on himself for us. Jesus becomes the person whom God destroys so that in him we can become a people on whom God has mercy. God will act again to judge um, societies, all the individuals within them. But the next time he does that, it will be Jesus who does it, and not through any human agent. So coming to the end, Christians, what is our role? We don't seek to exercise God's justice. What we do do we're here to proclaim God's mercy. That is our role in this world. So before people start comparing Deuteronomy 7 with Islamic Jihad um, and saying Christians are just as bad, our role is to proclaim the message of mercy before that judgment comes. And what that means for many Christians is a life of persecution and suffering rather than inflicting any violence. So there we have the, the eight building blocks that hopefully give a picture of God's justice, God's mercy, and the final fulfilment in Jesus Christ. How do we use them to respond to this question? Uh, how could we worship the God who commands genocide? Well, let's, um, let's try that out, shall we? Huh? We can see still just a couple of minutes remaining. Try a role play this time with your neighbour. One of you act as a non-Christian asking the question. The other just try and respond to it. Based on what we've seen, you can leave the, uh, those points up as you want to refer to them as a prompt. Um, one of you, if you're not Christian here this evening, then, then you don't need to act it out. You can, you can ask your genuine questions. But just try and role play that. One of you um, ask the questions, and as we looked at the other week, this is not a sort of ask the question and get a lecture. This is a conversation. We're engaging with, with those who have these questions. We're, we're moving to where they, they're going to. We're trying to understand what is beneath it. Um, and we're offering partial answers as we move through it. We want to head them to Jesus, obviously. He's the answer. Uh, he's the great mercy that we have, the great answer we have to this problem. But just to try and role play that if you don't want to do that. Um, again, just maybe sit in quiet and, and pray about what you've been hearing this morning, this evening. Um, and just uh, 
deal with God if he wants to deal with you. Just a few minutes to do that and um, we'll close with our final hymn. Let's pray. The Spirit and his bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Father, we thank you for your great salvation plan. We thank you that it started so long back with the choosing of the nation of Israel out of all the nations to be a blessing to the world. And we thank you that that plan is fulfilled in Jesus. We thank you that he was willing to take on himself the punishment for the world. And thank you that in him we see your mercy, that in him we can find forgiveness. That through him we can inherit all of your great blessings for us. And we do pray, Lord, that we will be able to proclaim that message to a world which is in need of hearing it. For for those who are blind to their rebellion against you, Lord, open those eyes, we pray. And use us as your instruments of mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.